Hello, and welcome to the TLT Scale Up Insights series of podcasts with me, Nina Searle, and my co-host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew and I are partners in the Fast Growth team here at TLT. We are a cross-jurisdictional UK team, helping rapidly scaling businesses to manage the legal challenges that come with growth. In each episode, we'll dive into key topics that you're going to be thinking about as you grow your business and what you really need to know from a legal perspective. We share our insights and advice on the issues that clients bring to us on a daily basis and discuss them with experts, both from inside and outside the firm, drawing on their experience and the advice that they have found most valuable. We aim to work with our clients throughout their journey, supporting them from scale to sale. So whatever your business goals, this series will give you the insights you need to help you stay on course and achieve them. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any questions about anything we discuss in the show, please do get in touch at scaleupinsights at tltsolicitors.com. Welcome to the first in our series of podcasts, looking at what the funding landscape looks like for scaling businesses. Venture capital investment is perhaps the most well-known, but there are other options such as debt, venture debt, crowdfunding and peer-to-peer lending that could be an option for businesses that need a cash injection. Some of the options available will be better suited to certain businesses at different stages of growth, and we will explore some of those today. We're delighted to be joined by Director of Partnerships at Crowdcube, Jonathan Keeling, and our very own Vicky Carr, TLT Tax Legal Director, to talk about what types of funding are available to help businesses scale up. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. My name's Jonathan. I work in the partnerships team at Crowdcube. Partnerships to Crowdcube means that we work with all sorts of different firms from professional services like law firms and accounting firms through to corporate finance firms, accelerators, incubators, venture capital firms, institutions. And we're working with these partners to help their clients fund successfully on Crowdcube. Uh, We also work with partners at the back end of the process, so after you've raised on Crowdcube, and we've built a network of preferred suppliers that companies can use to help their growth after they've raised capital. Vicky, you're a recent addition to the TLT tax team. It would be great to hear a little bit more about you. So yes, I joined recently. I spent the last 12 and a half years working at Practical Law, part of the Thomson Reuters group, uh, writing about corporate tax laws, uh, corporate tax, which includes all the venture capital reliefs. And uh, since joining, I've spent quite a lot of my time answering quite a few EIS queries here at TLT. Jonathan, it'd be great if you could tell us about your own journey and about Crowdcube. I've been personally at Crowdcube for over four years, but the business was founded in 2011 by Darren and Luke, based out of Devon in Exeter. And we have gone on a great journey. It's grown up in the last few years, I would say, and it's really been well established within the wider venture community. As a business, we're backed by three great institutional investors, Balderton Capital, Draper, and Numis Securities. We also have 4,000 plus crowdfunding investors. So we've crowdfunded on Crowdcube multiple times. And yeah, we're continuing to raise for high growth, interesting UK, European startups. We've raised over 500 million, 165 million in 2019 alone. And we continue to be very excited to support great businesses. And which sectors particularly, Jonathan, are you seeing activity in at the moment or is Crowdcube particularly specialist in? I think there's three key sectors. Those are fintech, food and beverage and clean tech. 
we're about 70, 30 B2C, B2B. But saying that in 2019, we raised for over 220 businesses. So that's still a lot of B2B companies. We're there to support anywhere from an SEIS round from 50,000 all the way up to the prospectus limit, which is 8 million euros. So if uh, for some of our listeners, if they were to decide to go on to Crowdcube to look at some going through a crowdfunding campaign, how do they go about doing that? So Crowdcube is a member base. We um, go through a regulated sign-up process where you self-assess yourself. Obviously, we're, we're regulated as a promotions business by the FCA, and we uh, promote these businesses in a, in a fair, transparent, and, and non-misleading way to our member base. So you go through the sign-up process, and once you're part of that, you can have access to investing into these companies from £10. And for our listeners who are running a business and thinking that crowdfunding might be the way forward for them, what are the first steps that they need to think about? I, I guess actually going live on the platform in a way is the end of the journey mm. to an extent. There must be a process that they need to go through first and things that they need to, to get lined up. Absolutely. Crowdfunding is not easy. It's very, very similar to traditional fundraising as well. If you assume that an investor of a VC or uh, institutional investor, they're going to be looking at exactly the same things that a retail audience wants to see. So we're not a listings platform. You don't just apply and put your business up there and sit back and wait for the money to come in. There's a huge amount of uh, work that goes into preparing the campaign, going through the normal traditional routes of sorting out a, a great business plan, understanding you know the key things that you would place in that business plan, like market opportunity, market size, your team. And you've really got to th think through a lot of these things in a very thorough format. So beyond that, it's about three, four month end-to-end -end process. You'll come to Crowdcube. We'll understand whether we think you have the capability of raising successfully, and then we'll invest in that business. And when I say that, we'll invest time and resource into getting you ready for a crowdfund. You've then got 30 days live on the platform. And we then work with you, obviously, to to distribute that to as many people as possible and, and ensure you've got a great key message and story that's going out to our network and your own network as well. And John, having seen the clients who have uh, successfully raised on, on Crowdcube, and often they've invested heavily in their in their marketing as well, have you know, all seen all dancing videos ready to go so as to sell the story. Are there any key distinctives of a successful, fundable offering that you think would be important for people to, to give time and energy to should they decide to go onto the platform? Yeah, I think the important point here is that crowdfunding has really matured and we're now formally part of the funding mix. So we're not there to displace venture or institutional capital or even angel networks or corporate venture. We're there to complement that market. So our vision over the next five years is not to allow or look for venture capital to invest via Crowdcube. It's for crowdfunding to exist alongside. So my point here is that VC and institutional capital, this type of traditional money is really, really important for the market. They'll invest strategically. They'll take board seats. They'll put a lot of good corporate governance around these companies. And for crowdfunding, it's that additional element that a lot of these VCs are actually looking for. So they're looking for user acquisition. They're looking for really cost-effective marketing. They're looking for brand awareness. They're looking for you know, business growth. And crowdfunding enables that through the fundraising process itself, which is what has really sort of enabled us to work alongside some of the best 
venture capital investors in the world. Um, so you look at Monzo as a great example. We raised for their their seed round um, and subsequently worked with them three times. In their last round, they had 100 million committed from Stripe's venture capital arm. And we raised 20 million for them in two and a half hours. And that was a very strategic move from both Monzo and their institutional investors because what they were looking to do was to acquire users in, in a very cost-effective way by allowing them to buy into the business to actually ultimately drive lifetime value as well. So that, those customers are now the biggest fans of that business. They're the highest referrers to Monzo itself, and they've built a very resilient and, and loyal customer base close to their company. And obviously, from that example, it's, it's clear that crowdfunding has its place in the journey of a scaling or some scaling businesses as they go through early stage funding to more bigger rounds further on in their journey, whether that's Series A that you might help them with or Series B where it's other institutional investors come on board. In terms of how that looks practically from a shareholding perspective, all the people who've paid £10 or invested £10 via the platform... Do those people appear on the shareholder list or is it just one nominee shareholder and you manage all that back office process? Yeah, Crowdcube has a nominee product. We introduced that around three years ago, two and a half, three years ago. Before that, we were operating a direct shareholding model, which has has its benefits and also has its has its cons. We believe that the nominee model is the best way forward. And you know, for the last three years, we've been operating every single raise under our nominee. And it is a great way of, again, driving potential follow-on rounds as well. If you've got hundreds of investors in in your raise, you can come back to Crowdcube for a preemption round that we can execute in 24 hours. You can go through a preemption plus round where you are just placing your proposition just to your current shareholders within the nominee. And it's a great way if you can do that from seed stage and you can onboard a number of investors and you can sort of prove that continued growth trajectory of your business, people are going to want to continue to buy back in. So to answer your question, yes, the, the nominee structure. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really built a sort of resilient and decent structure for, for crowdfunding at large. Jonathan, you mentioned EIS relief uh, for shareholders. And I thought maybe, Vicky, it could be helpful for you just to build out for us and for our listeners uh, some of the tax reliefs that could be available to investors and in scale-up and high-growth companies. Yep. So Jonathan mentioned EIS relief. There is something before that, which is called seed EIS relief. So um, basically, the, the reliefs give both income tax relief for investments up to a maximum amount for individual investors and um, possibly most importantly for a lot of people, capital gains tax relief. So it's a complete exemption on the disposal of the shares if they're held for the appropriate period of time. And relief isn't lost at any point during the journey, then an individual who's got income tax relief also benefits from capital gains tax exemption. And in terms of SCIS and CDIS and EIS, is that just something that can just occur for the investor naturally or do they have to go through any any hoops to be jumped through on that? The hoops are notoriously complex, actually. That's one of the problems with both SEIS and EIS. There are various tests that have to be met by the investor, by the company invested in, and the shares must also qualify. What's more complicated is that some of the tests have to be met on the date that shares are issued, and those are relatively easy to check that you've met them. And then there are other tests that have to be met throughout the qualifying three-year period. 
So investing companies have got to be very, very careful that after the investment has occurred, they don't do anything that's going to mean that the investment is uh, no longer qualifying. What's really good about both systems is there is an HMRC advance assurance process that's very, very helpful. Uh, HMRC recently have actually made the advance assurance process a little bit trickier. They're very um, specific about what the advance assurance should contain. And if you don't comply with that uh, requirement, so for example, you've got to complete a checklist and it's an HMRC checklist that you must complete. And if you don't do that, then they won't look at your advance assurance. The rules are continually being tinkered with. And so there are some tests that HMRC will apply above everything else. So most recently, there was the risk to capital investment test. And that's a gateway test. So HMRC will look at that first. And if they don't think that uh, test is met, they won't grant the advance assurance. Vicky, some of the timeframes that Jonathan was speaking about in terms of how quickly that companies can get funded through Crowdcube, thinking about that advance assurance, how quickly can you sort out advance assurance? Is that something that you know fast growth and scale-up companies can be reactive about or should they be thinking about it as early as possible? As early as possible, absolutely. You've got to get everything in order before you send off your advance assurance. And then once you've done that, you then have a period of time to wait before HMRC will come back. HMRC say they take between four to six weeks to come back, but that time frame can change. So you have to have all of your ducks in a row before you can put your advance assurance in. And you talk about advance assurance. Is it assurance or, or is it compulsory? It's not compulsory. You absolutely don't have to apply for it. But I think that most people want to apply for it. It, it does mean that you have that comfort blanket that your EIS or SEIS shares will qualify. Once you've got your advance assurance, though, that's not the end of the story. So just because you get that advance assurance does not mean you're going to qualify for EIS relief. The company has further procedural steps that they need to undertake. And things can go horribly wrong in that process. So, for example, a company has to submit a compliance statement and they have to submit that compliance statement to HMRC and HMRC will then issue a certificate, which then means that the uh, company can tell the investors you've got your EIS relief. If you get that compliance statement wrong, you can lose EIS relief or SEIS relief. So, for example, there was a case recently where the company, instead of submitting a compliance statement for SEIS, they inadvertently did it for EIS and the relief was lost. That's a cautionary tale. I think from our perspective as corporate lawyers, we see SEIS and EIS investors coming in and investing in companies. And, and whilst, as you say, it's not compulsory, certainly the investors don't see it that way. They they want to invest in a company knowing that it's going to be EIS compliant. And they push those protections through the investment documents, actually, so that there are requirements on the company and the founders in those documents to maintain compliance and to take the regulatory steps, the HMRC steps that they need to take so that the investors got some protection contractually as well to make sure that they are able to preserve that relief. Jonathan, you mentioned that Crowdcube can offer EIS opportunities for its uh, investors. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about how that works? Yeah, so as Vicky said, we're, we're looking to engage with companies up front to secure advanced assurance as early as possible. We list companies on the website of broad range and scale and size from SEIS to EIS and above. And it, as you say, does take a fair bit of time, but we don't do it ourselves, but we do have a preferred sort of network of partners like yourselves that we can 
refer to and 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 enable companies to go through that process in a compliant manner and get their advanced assurance sorted. One thing that is worth bearing in mind is for, for later stage companies is some of the restrictions around EIS. So Vicky could go into this in a little bit more detail, but some of the larger businesses that we've raised for recently, like Carwow, Curve, Free Trade, these businesses are raising £5 million plus, and there are restrictions around the amount you can raise under EIS. And there's also restrictions around how old you are as a business. So for some of these later stage businesses, I'm assuming it's assumed that these businesses are deemed to be slightly less riskier because they're further along their journey. So EIS wouldn't qualify. What's your thoughts on all of that, Vicky? I completely agree. SEIS and EIS, they're both targeting startups and high risk businesses. So once they get to a certain age, they are less risky. Um, So there are qualifying requirements for the uh, investee company. It has to be of a certain age and there are certain limits that it can raise funds uh, for. So for example, there are both annual investment limits and lifetime investment limits. These annual and lifetime investment limits are extended if you're a knowledge intensive company. Vicky, often early stage companies will have their business plans ready, we'll put that out to investors and get them to to back that and could well hold their advanced assurance certificate there to give them comfort that they will get the tax reliefs that they want. Once that money has been invested and we've talked about that sort of ongoing compliance that, that needs to go on, for that sort of the onus will be on the company to do, can they use that money for, for anything or are there any restrictions on how they apply those funds? There are restrictions. First of all, they have to use the funds within a defined period of time. And they can only use those funds for qualifying business activities. So they, they have to be careful as to what they use their funds for. So for example, often you find people have lent money in, repaying loans, that might not be acceptable. So they do have to be very careful about what they use their money for and make sure that the money is used within the two-year period. And I guess, Vicky, although it can sound a bit onerous, all the compliance and the hurdles that you have to jump through to be eligible for SEIS and EIS relief, in the context of what the government introduced those reliefs for, it makes a bit more sense. I mean, they were introduced as a trigger, as a catalyst to get people to invest money in early stage businesses because there was a lack of funding available. And so I guess that's where, for example, the the gateway risk profile questions come in because the whole point is you you benefit from these tax relief as investors but it is risk capital to stimulate that part of the market. Absolutely and it's been very very successful. Some latest statistics released by uh, HMRC suggested that over 4,000 businesses have benefited in 2017-18 so it's a very successful regime but yes it does have to be targeted at those high risk companies. The tax relief is very very valuable to investors. The capital gains tax exemption is also very, very valuable. So it has to be targeted. It's also a state aid relief. And therefore, the government have got to comply with the state aid rules. And so a lot of the changes that we've seen recently have actually been to comply with those state aid rules and to make sure that that tax relief, that very valuable tax relief is properly targeted to the right companies. And do you think it helps to make the UK an exciting and uh, attractive place to invest? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We see a number of businesses that actually are moving to the UK in part to raise capital. I think it's been an amazing mechanism to support the UK SME economy. And 
you know, on a CrowdCube perspective, we we did our thousandth raise in 2019. We've had over 800 million invested through the platform since 2011 and 165 million in 2019 alone. So it, it's not slowing down. There's serious appetite from, from the retail audience and businesses are, you know, becoming more and more savvy about, you know, how to use EIS and how to effectively go out and raise capital and get on with growth and, and hiring people, which is which is what it's all about. And Jonathan, from your investor base, the you've mentioned the number of retail investors who, who have used Crowdcube to, to date. Where are they based? Do they have to be in the UK or can they be international? To qualify for EIS, they do need to be in the UK, but we take investment from over 120 countries. There's a very interesting project live on Crowdcube at the moment called Magway, which is a Hyperloop type project, which distributes um, goods out of airports. And that business has been interesting to follow online, actually, because we deliver metrics around your raise within a dashboard to the entrepreneurs as the fundraiser is going on. And they've had taken investment from over 100 countries. And it's quite incredible to think about the impact that a crowdfunding round can have in terms of reach and that ability to to um, to onboard potential customers and other people that can become advocates for your brand. So, yes, certainly it's it's really exciting globally. But equally, the majority of our investment is still very much in the UK, mainly because of of EIS and SEIS. I suppose, Jonathan, with that international reach, are we seeing a rise in crowdfunding? Is crowdfunding taking off globally now? Is this something that is this a real sort of international phenomenon? Certainly growing up, the UK has led the charge globally and European markets are beginning to sort of adopt some of the regulation that the FCA has put in place with with leading platforms like Crowdcube and Cedars. So we're seeing markets grow up. We've got an office in Spain. We've done a number of high-profile multi-million pound raises in Spain and, and other key markets. We recently raised for an index ventures-backed business based out of Belgium called Cowboy. And we raised over four million. So again, these things will slowly come in once other sort of relevant and high-profile companies lead the charge. And we're seeing regulation come into play in Australia, in the Asian markets. The US is actually still very challenging, but ultimately, I think it will begin to slowly roll out. But there are certainly challenges. Coming back to the support, Jonathan, that Crowdcube provides for the companies that are looking to raise crowdfunding via the platform you talked about working with them to help them get EIS compliant but presumably they can't just resign themselves and hand everything over to you for you to just sort them out and get them ready so what other advisors or other support do businesses need to be reaching out for as they go through that process yeah it's a great question so Crowdcube are a technology platform at heart and although we have a number of different departments from marketing to legal to compliance, fundraising, campaign support, campaign management. It's really, really important for companies to get the right partners and service providers around them to support their raise. Everything from legal support to make sure they're doing their advanced assurance in the right format through to understanding what's appropriate valuation to go out to market with, understanding what type of marketing strategy they should be launching through their crowdfunding campaign. Crowdcube as a business will guide you and will give you all of the support and resources that you need. But ultimately, it's really, really fundamental to get the right advisors around you. And I think this plays into, again, the maturity of the industry because we're now working alongside 
top tier service providers. We consistently work alongside accounting firms, law firms, corporate finance, advisory firms, and actually accounts for a good proportion of our revenue. Over a third of our quarterly revenue now is coming from advisory firms that are bringing their clients to Crowdcube as a source of capital. And then we work with them and take that client through the fundraising process on Crowdcube. And Vicky, following on in that vein about SCIS and EIS investment, but looking specifically at where and when companies should take advice. In a lot of these podcasts, we've been asking the experts, you know, what can our listeners do themselves, relatively low risk, and where do they actually need to deploy money to get the right advice from from the right people? When's the right time to do that? And what should they be asking for? So the right time is as early as possible. The beauty about getting advisors involved early is that we can help make sure you don't fall into any traps. So that's one of the important things about getting advisors in early. Obviously, the business has to put together its business plan and has knowledge of that side of things. But we have the expertise pulling together the advanced assurance application, making sure timing's right, ticking all the boxes. We can quite quickly see whether there are any issues that need to be resolved. We can help with processes, both during the advance assurance process and afterwards. So alerting companies to the things that they need to do post getting their advance assurance application. And it sounds like a really a really positive thing to do, Vicky. I mean, even listening to what Jonathan has said in terms of the benefits to investors, that knowing that if there's that sort of stamp of approval, that they're SEIS or EIS approved companies that are on the platform, or even aside from crowdfunding, just seeking investment from uh, investors, that to be able to offer that to investors, it's really quite winsome, particularly in relation to the benefits that you've already set out to do with uh, income tax and capital gains tax. You can see why companies should then apply their hard-earned cash to get the advice on that, to get it right, because it will ultimately really benefit them as they in their funding journey. Absolutely. Investors do want to have this tax relief. They don't want to lose it. So they want to make sure that everything's done to make sure that they won't lose it. They will get it in the first place and they won't lose it later. And then subsequent investment rounds, investors will be looking to see whether anything has happened in the past where things have gone wrong. So every step of the journey is really important, but it's hugely beneficial. And we can take away some of the more difficult aspects of reviewing the legislation, making sure that the company is compliant, the shares are compliant, making sure that any post-advanced assurance transactions don't cause any problems. As I say, really just making sure that businesses don't fall into any traps that can be easily avoided. And I suppose one of the things that Nina, you and I get asked about often is you know, companies needing money quite quickly in order to, to meet uh, some of their requirements and they just want to get money in. Uh, is there any risk around that, game? Yes. So one of the most important things is there must be a subscription for shares. So often people will say, can we just make a loan into the company and then we'll get the shares later? And that's a big no-no. So what a lot of businesses do now is they um, allow people to enter into advanced subscription agreements so that very early in the process, money can be put into the company and then the shares are issued later. HMRC has actually very helpfully recently published some guidance on that, exactly what it expects to see in that advanced subscription agreement. And it's 
pretty basic stuff. You know, the advance subscription agreement must be a subscription agreement. It mustn't be some form of loan. So there must be no interest charge. HMRC are looking for a long stop date of no more than six months. So that's something that might be quite difficult sometimes. It can't permit the uh, subscription to be refunded in any circumstances. So that's some guidance that's got to be adhered to. Most importantly, HMRC has also said that if you are looking for an advanced subscription agreement and you are going to go for an advanced assurance, you have to do the advanced assurance first. Uh, HMRC's view is that if you've already got your advanced subscription agreement, you've done it. So you don't need your advanced assurance. So timing is really important there. That's really vital information for people to know and very recent guidance from HMRC. I think we've been seeing these advanced subscription agreements for a while now in the corporate team and advising on putting them in place. And Andrew's absolutely right. Companies often need an injection of cash quite quickly. There isn't time to agree a price per share is usually what the hurdle is in terms of timing. And so they put the money in, put the agreement in place. And then when there is an investment round, the money can just be used to subscribe for shares at that time at the agreed price at that point. And the key has always been and remains, as well as the timing, to make sure that it's not in any way refundable, that it can't possibly be construed as a debt. Otherwise, the benefits are all lost. So we've talked today about the different sources of funding, primarily on equity funding and via crowdfunding. But if there's one key piece of advice that you would give Jonathan, one key takeaway from our discussion today, what would that be? I think the main point that we've we've covered and I, I, I passionately believe is so, so important for crowdfunding is preparation. You really need to understand as, exactly what's coming, understand your, you know what all the potential pitfalls are. And as we nicely put it, you've got to get all your ducks in a row. So it's, yeah, preparation, fundamental, and understand what all of your options are and, you've, and making sure you've got the right people around you to, to execute. And Vicky, what would your takeaway from today be? Very similar. Advice, get advice early. If you get an advance assurance, act on that advance assurance. Don't just think that's the end of the story. Make sure that you follow up with your compliance procedures. Don't lose that relief by not doing that. And put in place processes to make sure that going forward, you're not going to do anything that's going to harm the relief for investors. That's great. Jonathan, Vicky, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. I'm sure that our listeners will have benefited from understanding more of SEIS, EIS, the benefits it has to their investors and why they, why it could be a good idea to put their hard-earned cash towards good advice should they pursue that. And I'm sure many will be looking up Crowdcube to see about getting a fund around. Jonathan, do you want to maybe signpost people as to where they should, where best to go for that? Yeah, as an investor or a business, check out crowdcube.com. Or if you want to connect with myself, I'm on LinkedIn. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Scale Up Insight podcast. If you have any questions about anything we discussed in the show, please get in touch at scaleupinsights at trtsolicitors.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us and leave us a review on your podcast app. It means that more people can find us and take a listen. The information in this podcast is for general guidance and represents our understanding of the relevant law and practice at the time of recording. We recommend you seek advice in specific cases. Please visit our website for our full terms and conditions.